What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's Saturday, July 1st, 2000, and an eight-year-old schoolgirl is playing in a field outside of her grandparents' house at Littlehampton in West Sussex. As she plays with her older siblings, she trips and scrapes her knee. She runs back toward the house through some bushes and trees, and her older brother notices her from across the field and follows. But when her brother exits the field, the young girl is nowhere to be found. Not on the road, not in the house. The little girl had vanished in a matter of seconds. For the next two weeks, the public was captivated as police desperately searched for the missing girl. Everybody wants to find that child because a missing child is every parent's worst nightmare. But she would never be found. She had been abducted and murdered by a stranger. One local police officer already had a suspect in mind, a man known to the police who was a convicted pedophile. This was a girl he didn't know who fell into the hands of what could only be described as a monster. But with no evidence against him, police had no choice but to let the man remain free, knowing he could strike again at any time. I mean, I had nightmares about it. I literally had nightmares over the first few weeks. What happens if he takes the third child? This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Roy Whiting. Roy Whiting was born on January 26, 1959, in Horsham, in West Sussex. He grew up in nearby Crawley. Whiting's life did not start out as a happy one. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley elaborates. It was a family that was beset by quite a lot of tragedy. So there were six children, and three of them died in infancy. So an awful lot of trauma to cope with quite early on in his life. As he got older, life didn't get any easier. Whiting's parents, George and Pamela, got divorced when he was a teenager. Whiting also struggled socially, says Elizabeth Yardley and Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson. Roy Whiting left school without any qualifications whatsoever. Um, he was somebody who didn't really get along in school. He wasn't particularly academic. Um, he didn't really fit in at all, whether socially or in, in terms of his studies. So he was always a bit of an outcast. Whiting was clearly a bit of an oddball, a loner. Friends described him as a bit of a Billy No-Mates. When you combine that with the insecure attachments he had within the family, that the lack of relationship with, with his mother, um, the, the disrupted relationship with his father, it does start to, to write a bit of a script. As an adult, Whiting found a passion for cars and began working in a local garage. While working there, he met a woman who he married, and they had a child. But the relationship didn't last, and the couple divorced soon after the birth. By 1990, 
31-year-old Whiting was living alone in his hometown of Crawley. It was around this time that he formed his attraction to young girls. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell adds more. I think he probably recognized it in himself, but didn't quite know how to handle it. And so I think you got that classic mental conflict that afflicts paedophiles and indeed affects serial killers. Part of them thinks, I want to do it, and part of them thinks, no, you mustn't. Eyewitnesses, neighbours, people in the vicinity where he lived talked later about how they believed that he was seen quite often scouting for girls, as somebody said, that around school-going home time, that he would set off in his van and head off to local schools to see what he could see. So he's probably doing two things at this point in time. He's fantasizing um, about what he would do if he was on his own with one of these children. He's also identifying vulnerabilities. He's getting familiar with, with this, this victim group. He, he really is a predator getting ready to pounce on his prey. Then, in 1995, at the age of 36, Whiting acted on his dark urges. On the 4th of March, 1995, he gave in to what you might, I suppose, describe as the wolf within him and abducted a young girl. He literally scooped her up off the street, took her away to a wooded area where he sexually assaulted her. So this was a really horrendous crime. After the abduction, Whiting sold his car in an attempt to avoid detection by police. However, police soon discovered the car, and the forensic evidence they found inside left them with little doubt that Whiting was the man they were searching for. It became abundantly clear to the police that this was indeed the car in which the poor girl had been abducted. They arrested and charged Whiting with a sexual attack on a young girl. In June 1995, Roy Whiting was sentenced to just four years in prison for the kidnapping and assault of a nine-year-old girl. Before he went to trial, a psychiatrist examined him and came to the conclusion that Whiting was not a paedophile, that this was a one-off event and that he was very unlikely to re-offend. While he was in prison, however, there was a second psychiatric report which suggested that not only was he likely to re-offend again, but he was certain to effectively, that the, this was a man who was obsessed with young girls. Whiting only served two and a half years of his sentence and was released in 1997. The weight of his crimes, however, would follow him back into public life. He was one of the first people to be placed on what was then a new thing called the Sex Offenders Register. A registered sex offenders have to be known to the police and where they live is important, and there has to be an accurate record of them and they have to report to the police on a regular basis. Whiting didn't return to Crawley and instead headed for Littlehampton on the south coast of England. Well, after leaving prison, Roy Whiting moved to a seaside town, um, a town full of families, a town full of children, and this was no accident. And essentially, he tried to blend in on a superficial level in terms of jobs, um, in terms of appearing to be an average guy. But this wasn't going to last because he was very intent that he was going to offend again. 
He was quite, uh, I think, ashamed of who he was. Uh, he didn't like himself very much. And he wanted to exert power. He wanted to exert control. And that's what turned him into the predator he became. On July 1st, 2000, Sarah and Michael Payne took their four children to Kingston Gorse in Littlehampton to visit family. It would be a day that would change their lives forever. Late in the evening, eight-year-old Sarah Payne was playing with her brothers and sister in a field opposite her grandparents' home when she suddenly vanished. Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson adds more details to the disappearance. It seemed that Sarah was a few yards behind the others and they were out playing and suddenly they looked round and she was no longer there. She disappeared. It was well into the evening before the family got concerned enough after they'd searched themselves, before they raised the alarm. With no luck in their search, Sarah's distraught family contacted the police. Martin Underhill was the detective inspector at the time of the disappearance. The call came in at 9pm on a Saturday night, and by 10, the balloon had gone up. And, and that's a policing term for you escalate it right to the top to the assistant chief constable, the deputy chief constable, the balloon goes up, everybody's called in. And within two hours of Sarah Payne going missing, there are over 100 cops involved in the case. Sarah's older brother, Lee, told police that he had seen a man in a white van speeding away just after losing sight of his sister. This was a key detail that led police to believe Sarah had been abducted. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says this likely happened in a matter of seconds. This was something that happened very, very quickly. It was a real blitz abduction. Um, there, there was no grooming, there was no kind of manipulation. It was something that, that happened very, very fast. Police immediately launched a search for the white van. Their hope was that it would lead them to the eight-year-old girl and Sarah Payne could be brought home. Police knew every second that passed made it more unlikely she would be found alive. The best advice we had was that a child abducted by a pedophile would be dead within six hours. Officers hunted through the night, but by morning, Sarah was still missing. As news broke across the country, the media swarmed Littlehampton. It was probably 24 hours after the little girl was reported missing, that police started to put out word that they were concerned that there was a missing girl, which has the effect of recruiting the general public to be out there as extra eyes and ears to perhaps keep an eye out for this little girl and to search for her. I'm sure in the first 24 hours, most people were looking in the vicinity of the grandparents' home, thinking, well, she's just got herself lost. She's wandered into the woods, she's in the field, or she's wandered off down the road. And it would have been only slowly that the concern would have started to dawn that perhaps she'd been abducted rather than just wandered off and got lost. Police only had one lead to work with. Sarah's 13-year-old brother had seen a man behind the wheel of a white van driving away from the scene of the abduction. He was very clear that Sarah fell over and cut her knee. She ran diagonally across the field to get her, go back to Nana, because Nana was at the end of the field. Her house overlooked it. 
So Sarah runs across the field. Lee thinks I'm going to get in trouble because I'm the oldest child. I need to supervise this. Sarah disappeared into a hedge. When Lee came out through the same hedge, seconds later, there was no Sarah and there was a white man driving along the road. As police looked for potential suspects, the hunt for Sarah continued. Soon, there were hundreds of people looking for the young girl. Within a couple of days, I can remember the, the scale of this story starting to escalate quite rapidly. The way the police were describing this, they were really concerned. And they were asking the public to help. And uh, very soon, the public around the area in West Sussex were out in quite big numbers, sort of combing fields and woods and uh, trying to look for this girl. Within a couple of hours, we had over 100 police officers involved. And by the Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, there were 500 police officers involved. And by the Tuesday, so three, three or four days into the, the incident, there were over 1,000 police officers involved. So at one stage, uh, one in three police officers in Sussex were working on this case. It was staggering. Everybody wants to help. Nobody wants to see a child missing. Everybody wants to find that child. Because a missing child is every family, every parent's worst nightmare. News of the search soon reached beyond the UK, with Sarah's school photo being broadcast on news stations all over the world. That photo of her in her school uniform just swept the world. And uh, I think the, there's not many things as a police officer after all the service I've had and the murders I've investigated that shock me. I was really surprised to see so many satellite bands outside the Little Hampton Police Station uh, from Japan, New Zealand, America, Sweden, Norway. Every country in the world sent a satellite band to report on this case. As the investigation continued, police turned their attention to one suspect in particular. Just 24 hours after Sarah Payne's abduction, they visited a local man who was a registered sex offender 41-year-old Roy Whiting. We knew where he lived, and he was being regularly visited um, by our uh, sex offender team. Uh, he didn't have a white van, though. He was clearly the, the most appropriate person to look at because of what he did in Crawley a few years before, where he'd abducted a child and then sexually abused her. When police arrived to question him, they discovered Whiting had recently purchased a new car, a white van. However, Whiting had an alibi for the date of Sarah's abduction. They chatted to him. He said he'd been at a fun fair in Hove just down the coast at the time that Sarah went missing, and so he couldn't have possibly been anywhere near the scene. I think that the way that he actually told that lie, the fact he had the confidence to tell that lie, that suggests to me that he thought he was going to get away with this. He thought the police wouldn't dig too deeply. After speaking to him, the detectives were still suspicious, and they decided to stay and keep an eye on Whiting. And they sat in their police car outside the address. Literally, minutes later, Whiting comes out and goes to the white van and goes to open the door, and out falls a receipt. The two detectives approached Whiting again and immediately inspected the fallen receipt. It was a gas station receipt dated July 1st, the day Sarah Payne had disappeared, and the gas station was nowhere near Hove. The receipt clearly shows that he lied. So 
That small receipt falling out of the door as the officers stepped up to question him again, the second time they'd spoken to him, showed one, he lied about where he was on Saturday night, and two, that he'd been in a different location to where he said he was. And those officers made a very brave decision to arrest him on suspicion of abduction. Police took Whiting in for questioning and seized the white van for forensic testing. But former Detective Inspector Martin Underhill and author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell say Whiting refused to say anything to detectives about the missing girl. We know you're a paedophile, and we know you lied about where you were Saturday night. But of course, we didn't have Sarah. We didn't know if she was alive or dead. We didn't know where she was. Uh, And he was going no comment. So the inevitable happened. We had to release him. Throughout, he doesn't explain at any point to the police, doesn't help the police with their inquiries. He does his best to conceal his guilt. He does in no way tries to alleviate any of the suffering that Sarah and Michael Payne were going through. Heartless would be a pleasant way of describing Whiting. At a press conference on Monday, July 3rd, two days after her disappearance, Sarah Payne's parents made an emotional plea for her safe return. Sarah's mother's sorrow touched everyone who listened to the press conference. The thing that impressed everybody and the thing that made people cry in the room was her undying belief, her unswerving belief, that Sarah was coming home. And every day, in every press briefing, she spoke to Sarah and said, we were coming, we know you're there, we love you. When I'm getting emotional doing it now, and she did that day in, day out for a long time. And it was hugely emotional, and it was also hugely genuine. People saw it for what it was, and it, it was incredible, actually. Two weeks passed without any sign of Sarah Payne, and the chances of finding the missing eight-year-old girl were becoming slim. Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson says the public was growing less hopeful. As long as there's no news, there's always hope that a child who's vanished will be found again. But as every policeman and expert will tell you, if they're not found within the first 24 or 48 hours, there is a law of diminishing returns. The chances of finding them alive and well start to reduce quite radically. Everybody was desperate that this bonny little child who they'd seen in pictures, who they heard from the parents, they'd heard from her brothers and her sister, they all wanted her to come home safe. But you knew that behind that, people's hopes were finding it hard to maintain hope. The longer it goes on, you know that that hope is perhaps ill-founded. The police were certain that Roy Whiting was responsible for Sarah's disappearance, but they had no evidence to support this theory. I lost sleep over this. I mean, this is a guy who's abducted a little girl and um, horribly uh, abused her sexually. This is a man who is suspected of abducting and possibly sexually abusing another little girl who could still be alive and we can't find her, and we've got to let him go because there's not enough evidence to charge him. And what happens if he takes a third child? I mean, I had nightmares about it. I literally had nightmares over the first few weeks. But you have to work within the law. And we didn't have enough to charge him. And he was bailed and released. Um, And a few of us held our breath. What's going to happen next? 
In July 2000, police had spent more than two weeks searching for a missing eight-year-old schoolgirl named Sarah Payne. Police were convinced a local man and convicted pedophile, Roy Whiting, was responsible for her disappearance. However, they had no evidence to link him to the case, so Whiting remained free. Then, on July 17, 2000, Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson says breaking news confirmed what everyone had been dreading. Then came that day that we'd all feared. I'm sure the whole country had feared. The police announced that they had found the body of what they believed was a child about. 30 feet away from a relatively main trunk road, the A29, partially covered just off a footpath. And I think we all held our breath collectively in news studios, in newsrooms, and around the country, and homes right across the nation, hoping that it wasn't the worst, but fearing that it probably was. The body was later confirmed to be that of eight-year-old Sarah Payne. Former Detective Inspector Martin Underhill was rattled by the discovery. That was um, a black day for the inquiry and a black day for the country, really, because everyone was still living in hope of a little girl coming home, and she didn't come home. She was found lying dead in a field, and she deserved better than that. Sarah was found in a shallow grave on the edge of a farmer's field. Here's criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. Experts believe that the, the burial site where Sarah's body was found was dug by Roy Whiting very soon after he'd murdered her. So here is a sexual offender who wants to get this all over with very quickly. And it's almost as if he's, he's just closing that chapter, saying, right, that's done, I'm moving on. There's absolutely no sense of remorse, no sense of empathy with Sarah whatsoever. He's got what he wanted and he's finished. Sarah's body was examined for forensic evidence, but the examination revealed nothing. Police were once again left with no new evidence. Their only lead was a receipt that had fallen out of Whiting's car. It was from a gas station not far from where Sarah's body was found. Unfortunately, this was not enough evidence to link Whiting to the case. Police were desperate for hard evidence, and a 999 call was about to be the answer to their prayers. The day that um, her body was found, that prompted the lady to pick up the phone and say, I should have told you before, but I saw a child's shoe at the Coolan Crossroads. And that shoe transformed the case. This tip-off led police to Coolum in West Sussex, just eight miles from where Sarah's body had been discovered. Discarded in a field was a shoe belonging to the murdered girl. Police were hopeful the shoe could be the missing piece of the puzzle. That was a very emotional time because Sarah and her family were just coming to terms with losing Sarah. And then you do what every cop dreads to do, which is walk in with a plastic bag, an evidence bag, and say, I'm sorry, but is this yours? And we realized the significance of what we had. We had a man who was going no comment. We had a man that we just didn't have enough to charge. And suddenly, we found the shoe as a, a direct route from the petrol station to where she was found murdered. Hugely important and very emotional for the family to say, oh my God, that's my daughter's shoe. The small, child-sized 13 shoe was sent off for forensic testing. 
Detective Inspector Underhill was confident they would finally find some evidence to link Whiting to the case. It was a Velcro shoe. And Velcro is one of the most aggressive forensic capturers you'll ever find. Um, a piece of Velcro will grab hundreds of things a day. And that's what this did. This strap on this girl's shoe had literally hundreds of fibers, bits of grass, bits of earth, hair. While detectives were finally making advances in the case, the number one suspect, Roy Whiting, had moved back to his hometown of Crawley, where he was living with his father. Rumors of his involvement in Sarah's murder quickly followed him to his new residence. By this time, Whiting was known locally as a person of interest in the inquiry, indeed the possible killer of Sarah Payne, whose body has then now been discovered. Vigilantes attack Whiting's father's house. They threw bricks through the window, they uh, shout outside, and so Whiting takes himself off and, of all unlikely things, goes to camp in a tent not all that far from the estate in Crawley where he abducted the girl in 1995. Feeling the pressure, Whiting made a final attempt at escape. Whiting is clearly tormented. And during this period of the summer of 2000, he decides to steal a car. And then when the police went to stop him, he drove off at speed. Uh, and in fact, drove down a road the wrong way and a high-speed chase ensued. Faster and faster, Whiting driving this rather tired Vauxhall as quickly as he can, eventually crashes it into another car, is caught by the police who chased him, and of course is charged with stealing the vehicle. This really is quite kind of out of control. It's, it's quite reckless. And it's because he's not thinking that far ahead. He hasn't actually considered the eventuality that he needs to get away. And when he does realise that that's a possibility, he does the, the most ludicrous things because he, he hasn't got a plan. On July 23rd, 2000, Roy Whiting was arrested and charged with dangerous driving. He was placed in custody while waiting for his hearing. And that was an amazing moment for me because the risk level, the threat to the public disappeared. And we knew we had him. And all I had to do was keep that man in prison until we could prove he killed or abducted Sarah Payne. Whiting's time in custody would give detectives the chance to build a case against him. Whilst he's in prison, police go back and re-examine his white Fiat van. Bear in mind, a white van had been seen in the lane where Sarah had gone missing. And they find in it, eventually, through very, very meticulous forensic testing, a blonde hair. The blonde hair was a 10 million to one shot that it had to be Sarah Payne. There was really very little forensic doubt. The blonde hair, discovered on Whiting's sweatshirt, was a huge breakthrough in the case. And soon, even more evidence was found. We found fibers in that shoe which linked Whiting to the shoe and linked the shoe to Sarah. I think it was the icing on the cake for the case. It was the missing piece of the jigsaw. And then we, we had him, and we had him big time. Detectives finally had the evidence they desperately needed to link Roy Whiting to the abduction and murder of Sarah Payne. 
It felt good, actually. I just kept thinking, you can't do this anymore, Neil. We're not going to let you do this anymore, because it's not OK what you did. And then the hard work started. We had to get the case to trial. On February 6, 2001, while serving 22 months for the car theft, Roy Whiting was arrested in his prison cell and charged with the abduction and murder of eight-year-old Sarah Payne, seven months after her disappearance. Former Detective Inspector Martin Underhill says finally arresting Whiting was an emotional experience. Well, I got home and cried. That was the culmination of months of work to not just deliver for Sarah's family. I'd built a relationship with the Payne family. I respected the Payne family. And they deserved us doing this. They deserved justice. And so lots of emotions going through me. Uh, I've done this for the Payne family. I've also done this for the public because by charging this monster, we're keeping a third kid safe. However, the 42-year-old Whiting would not go down without a fight. His trial was set for November 2001, and he planned to plead not guilty to the murder of Sarah Payne. Detectives hoped that the three key pieces of evidence they had worked tirelessly to get would be enough to convince the jury to put him behind bars forever. When you look at the Coulomb shoe, and when you look at the red sweatshirt, I mean, there was a lot of either luck or fluke in the way this case came together. Because we only found out months into the inquiry that he spent Sunday morning steam cleaning the back of that van. Now, we'll never know because he's never spoken to us. Why didn't he steam clean the front of the van? If he'd steam cleaned the front of the van as well, the red sweatshirt would have gone and we would have lost a crucial piece of evidence, arguably the most important bit of evidence against Roy Whiting. And the buck barn receipt, I mean, he could have just thrown that away at the time. The chance of it falling out on the floor and an officer saying, what's that, let me look at it, was incredible. All those three things came together to create uh, a pretty convincing piece of evidence, but it's never lost on me that actually all those three things could have disappeared and we would never have solved that case. Prosecutor Timothy Langdale QC faced complete denial from Whiting. Well, his defence, to put it bluntly, was, I didn't do it, and I've no idea what, how there would be a hair of Sarah Payne's on anything in my van, and I'm not responsible for her death. The judge ruled the jury was not allowed to know about Whiting's previous conviction for sexual abuse on a child in 1995, which made the case against him harder to prove. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says the 19-day trial was incredibly emotional. I think one of the most moving moments of the trial was when it was put to him that effectively he threw this poor, innocent girl into the back of a white Ducato van, which he turned into a moving prison. It defies imagining what she must have suffered. There is no possible way anyone could forgive that kind of atrocity, that kind of depraved behaviour. This was a girl he didn't know, entirely innocent, cheerful, smiling, as every picture always showed her, who fell into the hands of what could only be described as a monster. After nine hours of deliberation on Wednesday, December 12, 2001, the jury reached their decision. 
Roy Whiting was found guilty of the murder of Sarah Payne. I can't believe for one moment that had he got off the killing of Sarah Payne, he wouldn't have returned to the same modus operandi that he'd used in 1995 and 2000. It would have been a tragedy. The Payne family, who suffered through the torturous four-week trial, could finally breathe a sigh of relief as their daughter's killer was convicted. The pressure, in particular, on Sarah's mother, Sarah Payne, must have been enormous hearing all this evidence about the terrible death of her daughter and having to sit there and listen to Whiting, one member of the family I seem to remember, and again, one can perhaps hardly blame him, said, may you rot in hell, or something to that effect. But that was the only time anybody gave vent to any kind of emotional response. And that was after Whiting had been convicted. On December 12, 2001, Roy Whiting was sentenced to life imprisonment and sent to Wakefield Prison. Sky News anchor Jeremy Thompson believes there should have been a way to avoid this tragedy. It's always shocking to think that somebody can be convicted of an act as awful as a paedophile attack. To be put away in prison, to be put on the sexual offenders register, and yet to be free to harm again, not that long afterwards. Five years later, surely our system is better than that, that it should better prevent these repeat offences as Whiting managed to carry out. And the effects of the harrowing murder of Sarah Payne can still be felt today, most notably by the people who were closest to her, her parents, Sarah and Michael. One thing I think in the news we tend to forget about is the aftermath of these terrible cases. And it was a long time afterwards you start to be more aware of the tragic impact that a child's abduction and murder has on all those around them, the whole family, probably friends as well, traumatised by it, never to be the same. And in the case of the pains, Sarah, the mother, appeared to be very strong and pushed through her great political campaign to get legislation changed. Driven by her daughter's murder at the hands of a convicted pedophile, Sarah Payne worked to ensure changes would be made so that other children would not suffer the same fate. The new legislation was named Sarah's Law. And to have something in this country called Sarah's Law, which was the equivalent to an American device called Megan's Law. In other words, you had the right to know where registered sex offenders lived in your area. And Sarah Payne's mother campaigned with the help of the News of the World to introduce this right. Throughout the tragedy, onlookers were stunned by Sarah Payne's strength. Sarah's mother had a stroke, now walks with some considerable difficulty, and has throughout behaved with the most enormous dignity and complete grace to this utterly poisonous man. I think her behaviour has been exemplary. I have uh, the utmost respect for Sarah. She was incredible, and my admiration for her in the way she steered her family, her children, and her friends through this was incredible. Sadly, 
the loss of their daughter had a negative effect on the marriage of Sarah and Michael Payne. In 2003, the couple separated, and Michael fell victim to alcoholism and depression. He died in 2014. Michael left us too early, and there's no doubt about it that the contribution of Sarah's abduction of Whiting's murder of his daughter and the stresses and strains that produced uh, led to his early death. I hope he's, he's now with Sarah. The abduction and murder of Sarah Payne is still remembered as one of the most infamous crimes in British history. I think murders like this, the, the murder of Sarah Payne, captures so much attention because this could have been anybody's child, anybody's sister, yeah, anybody's daughter. Um, and it's that, that idea of risk, that idea of stranger danger as being something that really feeds into the paranoia of parenting in contemporary society. It was a watershed because it, it changed the way the police and society looked at the child abduction. I think it really brought the horror of child abduction into everyone's house for the first time. It was about the time that 24-7 TV arrived and it was a massive case and it still is actually. People still talk about the Sarah Payne case. It's changed history. Her legacy is that a lot of children now are safer than they were in 2000. And that's a hell of a legacy for any person. Since Roy Whiting has been in prison, he's been viciously attacked on two occasions by fellow inmates. He will be eligible for parole in 2041 at the age of 82. I tend to think of him as being more pathetic than evil, but in the end, he did the most evil of acts. He killed another human being, and in this case, he killed an eight-year-old girl. There are a few worse crimes in our society. So he will go down as an evil man. I think the family need closure, even now. They would want to know what happened to their daughter. There are various unanswered questions. I don't think Warren Whiting will ever speak now. And I hope he watches in hell. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregge. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thank you to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, we would very much appreciate a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, in the summer of 1996, the people of Belgium were in shock as two young girls were rescued from a makeshift dungeon below a house. They had been kidnapped, raped, and tortured. In the next few weeks, the bodies of four other young girls were found buried at various properties, all linked to the same man. Some of them starved to death, others were buried alive. These are the, some of the most horrendous crimes that, that any criminologist will ever come across. It was the beginning of a terrible nightmare for the entire nation. 
It was such a huge thing. No one could believe that such a person could exist in Belgium. It was unthinkable.